So welcome everyone uh, tuning in to our conference. This interview is uh, pre-recorded, but uh, we have the tremendous honor and privilege of having an amazing man of God with us, Jim Wallace. Hey Jim, how are you? Blessing to be with you. I'm fine. Nice to be with all of you tonight. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us for a little bit. Um, but just in case there are people watching that might not know who you are, if you could just kind of do a brief intro as well. Well, uh, I'm, I'm a, a dad who's about to take his 17-year-old son out to a baseball game. Uh, he's a serious baseball player, and he wants to be recruited for college baseball, which he will be. But these games are important because he's got a yeah. decision soon. And uh, my other son uh, graduated from Harvard, wonderful school, just uh, in our living room during COVID <laughs> <laughs> weeks ago. And now he's, uh, he's now a political organizer, uh, his first job, field organizer, working on the election campaign for this fall up in Pennsylvania. Uh, I helped start Sojourners a long time ago, five decades, you said, right? Wow. Yeah, I was only six at the time. <laughs> uh, and it's always trying to put faith in action for justice. What does faith mean in action for justice? And um, uh, I was raised in a very uh, kind of evangelical church environment uh, that was all about us and God, me and God, that vertical relationship but didn't ever talk much about the world. It, it's interesting, the verse I was asked to memorize was John three sixteen, of course, right? Mm. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I still got the King James down, pretty good. <laughs> uh, but the whole first part of the verse got left out. For mm. God loved the world. What does this how does being saved by Jesus relate to the world or anything in the world? And so that's why I was eager to speak with you tonight. Uh, you're talking to a lot of young people. I was a young kid in Detroit uh, a long time ago. And um, uh, when I was 15 or 16, I began to listen to my world, reading the newspapers, watching the news, hearing conversations. And something really big <laughs> seemed really wrong in my city of Detroit, in my country. And yet nobody in my white church or white school or white neighborhood would talk about this thing that was wrong. How come we live the way we did in white Detroit and life seemed so different in black mm. from what I was hearing and seeing? And, and they didn't want to talk about that. They said, well, you're too young to ask these questions. <laughs> when you get older, you'll understand. Or we don't know why it's that way, but it's always been that way. Or uh, the only honest answer was, son, if you keep asking these questions, you're going to get in serious trouble. <laughs> and that proved to be true. So I would advise all young people listening to this, trust your questions. Trust your questions and follow them mm. wherever they take you. 
So I wasn't getting answers to my questions in my white church school and world. And so I followed them into what we called then the inner city. Mm. And there I met black churches. My goodness, there were black churches. I'd heard they, they existed, but <laughs> I think black churches to our place or into theirs. So they took in this young kid with obvious questions, showed a lot of patience and love and grace and took in, and I still find that to be my principal spiritual home in the black church. Mm -hmm. Then I took jobs alongside young men like me who were looking for work, but my job was to save money for college. And theirs was to support their families. So I remember I was a janitor at Detroit Edison Company. And I liked that because I was big and wasn't too big, but strong and athletic. And I could show I could move heavy desks around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was always given those jobs. And my friend Butch, who was like me, but he was black and I was white, strong kid. We moved the heavy desks around and cleaned up all the places. And But we were put on the duty of elevator operator. That's how old I am. We had elevator yeah. operators back then. So when they were sick or... On vacation, Butch and I would ride the elevators and run the elevators, <laughs> elevator operators. But we'd give him a break in the morning and the afternoon because your head would spin if you didn't. So I'd get on his elevator on my break, mm -hmm. up and down, we'd talk and talk and talk. At his break, he'd get on my elevator, talk and talk and talk. And one night he took me home for dinner with his mother and his brothers and sisters. We got talking about the police in Detroit. Because every riot, so-called, or it was always the police incident that sparked it. Always, always, always. And here's a mother, his mom, who wasn't militant or political, really. Worried about her kids, like my mom. Uh, worried about her son's ideas, like my mom. <laughs> she says, well, with police. So I tell my kids, if you're lost, can't find your way home, and you see a policeman, Duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, don't let him see you. Wait till he leaves, and when he's gone, come out and find your way home. Wow. When she said that, my mom's word echoes into the heads of her five kids. You're lost, can't find your way home. Look for a policeman. Mm. Your friend. Take you by the hand and bring you home. Butch and I were born, both born in Detroit, but lived in different countries. Wow. In Detroit. So that was for me what we call an epiphany in our Christian tradition. And I have most been changed by being places where I was never supposed to be, or with people I was never supposed to know or hear the story or become friends with. So that would be my first thought to young people. Um, go where you're not supposed to be. Meet the people you're never supposed to meet. We're all in geographic bubbles that are intentional, they're done by a policy, and they intend to keep us from knowing each other and hearing each other's stories. So I came out of that and uh, came home one night and one of my elders church said, Jim, son, I know you're in the city and doing all this talking and stuff, but you gotta understand racism has nothing to do with Christianity, because that's political, and our faith is personal. And Sam, that's the night that I left in my head and my heart, 
because what was ripping me up inside and taking all my energy and time had nothing to do with my faith, he said. I said, well, then I don't want anything to do with it either. Mm -hmm. I left and joined the social movements in my time, civil rights, poverty, anti-war in Vietnam. And that tear gas, beat up, all that stuff, organizing for years in college. But it taught me I wanted to change the world and be an activist. And so I knew I needed a foundation for that, right? Some basis for it, some, something to guide me and sustain me in that. And I was reading, uh, like we all were then, Karl Marx, Che Guevara, and Ho Chi Minh. But I wasn't satisfied with their answers. So I probably went back to the New Testament because I had never gotten quite shed of Jesus. Mm. <laughs> Even though I had left the church and they'd left me and were happy to see me go. And I found uh, this text, the 25th chapter of Matthew, uh, which became my conversion text. Wow. And the text is the, it was me text. Jesus says, I was hungry. It was me. Mm. I was thirsty. It was me too. I was a stranger, an immigrant. That's what the word means. I was sick, didn't have any health care. I was... I was a, a stranger, immigrant. I, 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 I was in prison, in a prison where white and black drug use is the same, but incarceration is overwhelmingly black and brown. It was me. That was me. And they said, when do we see you hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, stranger, in prison? We didn't know it was you. Had we known it was you, we would have done something, maybe formed a social action committee. <laughs> And Jesus says, as you've done to the least of these, the least of these, the wow. least of these, you've done to me. I don't know how much you love me behind a treat then. And I'd never been anything that radical than Marx, Che Guevara, Ho Chi Minh. And I said, this is it. This is a pretty radical. I signed up. Mm. Follower of Jesus. And that's what got me to seminary and eventually led the sojourners. A long wow. time ago. That's, that's so powerful. And... I mean, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, kids. Obviously, 2020 is a year unlike any year. And not only is there a pandemic, but crisis in, in everything. Uh, and obviously, with, with the murders of um, just so many African-American brothers, um, our black brothers and sisters here. You know, a lot of people in my generation have been rising up and, and you know, protesting and doing what they can. But you know, I, I wanted to have someone who's not done it for five weeks, but five decades where, um, you know, you were in the middle of everything that was happening in Ferguson. And like you said, in the 60s and, and all of that, um, you know, wh what are some of the, I guess, things that 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 keep you going? You know, I'm sure it's tiring when you get uh, beat up, when you get thrown in jail. Um, maybe people mistake your intentions, but you know, how do you keep fighting five decades in? That's a great question. Um, I, I, have, I have seen too much uh, not to be hopeful. I love Hebrews wow. where it says, Hebrews says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. My paraphrase of that text is something like this. Hope means believing in spite of the evidence mm. and watching the evidence change. Wow. 
what we as people of faith bring to these movements is that kind of hope because Desmond Tutu, one of my mentors, taught me that hope and optimism aren't the same thing. Optimism is how it looks today and uh, how the weather and the temperature and how's your schedule and what's the news looking like and hope, I mean, optimism is like a mood or a feeling. Hope is not a feeling or a, a personality type. Hope is a decision you make. Wow. A choice you make because of this thing we call faith. So that means we need people of faith to bring that into a movement that isn't just about issues and politics and anger and grievance and rage and protest. It's about what we believe God wants us to be, who God wants us to be. And it means there is a we, not just to us and them, wow. all of us. And that we're, we're moving together in what God wants to do with us and for us. And, and, uh, and to God, you know, black lives matter. <laughs> Amen. If black lives don't matter, that means no lives matter. That's right. Until black lives matter, all of our lives really won't mm. matter. And so uh, my, the foundation of my politics is the first book of the Bible in Genesis Chapter 1, verse 26, let us make them, says God, in our image mm. and after our likeness. So God created us in God's image and likeness. Imago Dei, image of God. So that means if we're all made in the image of God, you can't treat each other the way that we have been treating people. And so America's original sin wasn't just slavery, because there were slaves before, Greek slaves, yeah. Romans, and they were the tutors of the elite Roman kids. <laughs> but our slavery was, was racialized by, sadly, the Christians, because they knew that they couldn't, we couldn't keep doing to indigenous people and the kidnapped Africans what we were doing if they were people made in the image of God. Wow. So let's just say they weren't. Let's act like they weren't. They're less than human. They're different. White is better. White is superior. And people of color are less than us. That racialized, that was our original sin. And as Brian Stevenson says, slavery didn't end. It just evolved. Wow. So mass incarceration is our current. Yeah. So many things. And the Black Lives Matter movement now you know, when uh, George Floyd was, with that video of that white police neck uh, knee, that white police knee on the black neck of George Floyd, uh, for eight minutes and 46 seconds, yeah. that changed us, is changing us because in a pandemic, we're all watching. Mm. We're all watching. We're all hunkered down and we're not doing sports and watching games and we're all watching. And I've now taken my knee in sort of protest for eight minutes and 46 seconds. It's a long time. <laughs> Particularly for an old guy to be down on your knee there. And, and it's made us think about eight minutes, 46 seconds. has made us think about and talk about the last 401 years. Wow. 
And that's what's changing us. Now we see the systems in this, the attitudes, the, the, uh, the uh, heresy, a whiteness is a heresy. I don't want a word in white Christian that's important to be white. It ought to be Christian, not just white or uh, people who think they're white. We made that up. Mm-hmm. We made it up. The Europeans came in different, different yeah. ways, but they all became white people in America. Yeah. There's something fundamentally, it's a heresy. So the idea of white Christianity is a heresy. There is no white Christianity. So how do we, a new generation like yours, my kids, my boys, who were the blessing of COVID is I had both my boys, you know, for months and months and two-hour dinner conversations. And they're talking about how to be a part of uh, a new founding of America. Uh, what, what Eddie Claude, who wrote this wonderful new book on James Baldwin called Begin Again, I recommend Begin Again, mm. the third founding of America. And what if we all, uh, you know, black and brown and Asian American and Latina, all of us white, uh, what if we said, let's now do this together and make sure our systems are for all of us and let's change everything Yeah. until that's true. So I'm hopeful. I've seen too much. Uh, I, I saw apartheid brought down. I was, I was, you know, in in those uh, townships, black townships, during apartheid, organizing with the churches, hanging out, hiding from the police. Uh, I, I've seen gangs do peace summits and been part of that. I've seen too much change around the world. Uh, not to be hopeful, but I have to remind myself every day of not just what's wrong, but what God wants to do. And so your work in prayer is so important there because um, people ask me often, what, what, are, what are my spiritual disciplines, right? Because you need those to sustain you. You need to, because you can't just get caught up in all of the humanity of this because it's just, it's hard, you know, it's, and particularly for a long time, you have to, what's going to sustain you in all this? And for me, it's, it's the image of, of the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. That's good. And so I'm always watching the media and the news and conversation and having discussions and reading and taking it all in and then relating that to what does the Bible say? What does Jesus want? And what does it mean to reclaim Jesus right now in a time of, of fear and anger and violence? What do we do to reclaim Jesus. So without that to sustain me, after five decades, I'd have uh, probably burned out a long time ago. I wrestle with those questions uh, always, but you've got to always say, what what does God want here? What what kind of uh, nation, what kind of church, uh, what kind of people do we want to be? And with who else? And how do we make that what Dr. King called the beloved community mm-hmm. and praying, but praying, you know, is not just, uh, just uh, having this conversation 
with God by yourself. Prayer is how do you pray with your walking feet sometimes? Uh, mm. how, how, how do you, like we see prayer and protest, and I like it when prayer leads to protest, but that's got to lead to policy change. Mm. Prayer, protest, but policy change. So how do we, you know, keep praying our way and walking our way and living our way through that? Does that make sense? Yes. I, I would love for you to share maybe a couple uh, practical steps that people in their 20s, 30s, teenagers even, people in their 40s, uh, some practical steps you could give to believers. Because I think a lot of times believers feel, you know, paralyzed. I know I felt paralyzed, overwhelmed by what I see on social media, feeling like I'm doing too much, but then at the same time, maybe I'm not doing enough. And yet there's this tension and so many voices. But as someone who has been in the trenches and have walked this journey, what are some practical, maybe, maybe two steps that people can do as soon as they watch this interview? Well, you, you never know where your steps will lead. He, always taking the next one, the next one, the next one, not just 10 steps. I don't know where those steps will lead me, but what's the next thing I can do and say to speak out and speak up and, and join with others and act in ways, don't just talk in ways, but act in ways that can really make a difference. For example, let's be practical. Um, uh, when anyone tries to suppress another person's vote because of the color of their skin, that's an assault on the image of God. Mm. That's not just a political issue. So we've got this thing called lawyers and collars. Let look it up on the sojo.net website. In key states in this country for this election, clergy are going to join with lawyers to protect voters of color. Wow. Because they're going to try and steal the election. That's a fact. And look at our website. It lays all that out. So I see clergy led by black clergy, but also white clergy allies, multicultural church allies. My church is very, uh, it's a millennial church. I'm, I'm the only non-millennial, I think. <laughs> but, well, my boys are millennials, but... Uh, uh, but protecting black votes is an act of faith in, the, in this election. Yeah. The thing is, is uh, I would say naming racism as, in my mind, the religious issue in this election. Yeah. That gets narrowly reduced to a handful of very controversial things that get politicized, all that I know. But given what's happening, COVID has 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 re revealed and verified our fissures and differences and our the costs of of getting sick and dying uh, black and white three to one six to one it's revealed our inequities and then this galvanizing moment of george floyd which has just opened up uh, almost a kairos moment to use bill mm -hmm. and so how do we see that now Racism has got to be a fundamental religious issue in this election. So let's talk about that in our churches, our conversations, our small groups, our, our, uh, 
uh, are all the places where we are and live, right where we are, how do we speak and act with courage and try and bring people into a new vision of what things could look like. And uh, our, our problems won't be solved by uh, a candidate or a vaccine. <laughs> mm -hmm. But how do we move in a new direction? And how do I do that today? Uh, where I live, where I work, in my relationships. Uh, how do I raise these issues that have so much to do with the image of God, the sacredness and dignity of the image of God? So I want to be very practical, you know, and uh, how do we go into the streets? How do we go into movements and organizing and places where we're trying to make, I want this to be a, a free and safe and fair election. Yeah. To honor the image of God. So the practical thing right now is I think all of us doing what we, what we can to make that true. Uh, and uh, Jesus isn't running in this election. Uh, yeah. But you've got choices there. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just, 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 just say, uh, you know, uh, uh, when the last election occurred and so many white Christians voted for Donald Trump, there was a phone call afterwards, lots of us evangelicals, and I heard white evangelical leaders say, we didn't vote for him because of his racial bigotry. We voted because of other moral issues. And a black evangelical woman said, oh, I guess racial bigotry wasn't a deal breaker for all of mm. you. Racial bigotry is a gospel deal breaker. Mm. I want us to look at all of our choices up and down the ballot. Voting out racism in this is a religious commitment. It's confessional, not just electoral. So all of us, practically, how can we make sure to try and protect all our votes? How do we make sure to raise issues? Uh, I think abortion's an issue too. But not to talk about racism, not to talk about human dignity, not to talk about how all the essential workers are not getting a living wage, how aren't getting health care, Millions. These are faith issues. So let's have a deeper, broader conversation about okay. what are the faith issues. So I think that's our problem right now. Next hundred days, enter into this conversation where you are, and let's raise what God's concerns should be. Amen. I know uh, we're running out of time here, but as we wrap up, um, I would love for you, Jim, if you could paint just a picture, I guess, of, you know, how you challenged us and asked us to go deeper, to see what Jesus wants, to see what the Word of God says. Because uh, I know one of the things that you write in your book, America's Original Sin, I mean, you talk about some hard stuff, a lot of the stories you shared with us just now. But you also include how racial and cultural diversity is not America's greatest problem, but our greatest gift. Yeah. And, and ultimately justice and all of that. But what's the picture that you see, you know, the vision that you see when your eyes are closed that you could inspire us uh, to run with you and, and run with others? We'd love to hear you paint that picture for us. Here's the good news. The body of Christ globally is the most diverse human community on the planet. Wow. Our, but not in this country, but the body of Christ globally. 
we just had a call, a, a Zoom call for 50 young leaders like you from all around the world asking this question that you asked. What does it mean to, to begin to demonstrate and look like what that body of Christ was meant to be from the beginning? Uh, this is Paul made this central, you know, the, the crossing cultural boundaries, being all in, in my, when I close my eyes, as you said, I think of that Revelations text. Mm. The end of all this, it says, and they all gathered together and in their own languages, their own voices, their own uh, cultures, they didn't become some homogenous group. In all of who they were in their diversity, they praise God. Amen. Be to God. That's, it's right there in Re Re Revelation. It's in the America's original sin. Uh, it's all there. That's where we're headed. So how do we do that now? How do we live that now? How do we stand for that now? How do we fight for justice now? Uh, how do we take responsibility? And those of us who have benefited from these systems, did we cause all of it? No. But if we benefit from unjust systems, we are responsible for changing them. Wow. And I think we can. And so I think I want to put that revelation vision. Come on. King called it the beloved community. What does that mean? And I think your generation, my kids, what your generation is going to make that happen. The body Amen. of Christ has to navigate that diverse future. Amen. Um, as we close, could you pray for me and, and all those who will watch this? Uh, yeah. We would love for you to pray for us. Lord, we, we want you to hover over us, <laughs> hover around us. Um, um, help us to listen to you. Sometimes we think prayer is just talking all the time. <laughs> we need to listen to you. We need you to speak to us about this moment. And I want you to help us trust our hearts and our desires. And we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't need to know all of our steps. But help us to take that next step. Help us to show courage. Help us to even take some risk uh, and find you in the midst of all that. You've gone before us. You gather around us and you lead us forward. So I want a new generation to trust your vision, the kingdom of God. I want us to trust that and not be dismayed by all the obstacles to that, but to trust that vision and live it as best we can every day and keep growing in our understanding. We want the kingdom of God to come to be on earth as it is in heaven. Make us, uh, discerning and loving and praying and acting people we pray in jesus name amen amen well jim i want to thank you on behalf of uh pursue nyc and and all those who are watching this at our conference and even after uh, we appreciate you we honor you uh, we thank you for your legacy your hard work um, you modeled what you've taught us you've modeled uh, things you've written in, in your books. And um, I am so grateful. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we, we don't take your words lightly. And uh, we, we honor you. Thank you. It's my blessing to be with you all today. Okay. Bless you. Thank pray you. you. I'll pray for all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you.